We are on uh, week five currently of our teaching series, uh, Legacy, as you can see from the screen. Um, but next week, we're going to be taking a little break from this series. We're going to be um, welcoming a guest speaker with us, the International Missions Director for Elim, a guy called Ian Hesketh. is coming to talk to us about um, what the movement's been up to globally, um, how Elim are reaching out into nations, and he's going to bring a word to us on that morning as well. So it's going to be a really, really great morning, not one um, to be missed. So please spread the word um, and put it in your diaries. If we've, you and I, ever been on a long car journey together, um, you will know from my music taste that I'm a big fan of theatre, and in particular musical theatre. Um, my favourite production in recent years, um, like many people's, is Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, Hamilton. If you uh, haven't heard it or seen it, um, it tells the story of one of America's founding fathers, a guy called Alexander Hamilton, uh, through the medium of hip-hop and R&B. Um, it's really, really cool. You need to see it. I was considering um, wrapping some of it for you this morning, um, but the language is a little bit salty in parts, so I thought I'd... Uh didn't want to offend anyone. But the reason um, I mentioned this play to you today is because one of the themes, one of the themes of the production is this idea of legacy that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. About halfway through, um, George Washington says to Hamilton, let me tell you what I'd wish I was younger, well, I wish I'd known when I was younger and dreamed of glory. You have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And towards the end of the play, Hamilton reflects on this idea of legacy. He says, legacy, what is a legacy? And he concludes that it's planting seeds in a garden that you never get to see. I can hear someone rapping along, so that's, that's good. Um, but I guess the idea is that we can only really do um, the best with the time that we have. We never really know what happens to the seeds that we plant into the world and the seeds that we plant into people's lives around us. Some grow, others do not. All we can really do is be faithful to the life that God has called us to. And so this morning, I want to just spend a few minutes reflecting on the idea and thinking about the life that God has called us to. Now, so far in this series... We've had a lot of guys, haven't we? A lot of dudes. It's been all lads. Lads, lads, lads. Um, there was Steve Williams. That's not Steve Williams. That's the Williams belonging to Steve. Um, first of all, William Tyndale there on the left who fought to make the Bible accessible to the plowboy. Um, William Carey next to him um, who decided, actually decided the gospel was for everyone. And so went out on mission to India to take the gospel abroad. William Wilberforce, who lobbied for change at the highest level of government because he decided that people shouldn't be kept as slaves. Um, and then last week, Martin spoke to us about another guy, Philip Yancey, um, who looks a bit like Martin, but with an afro, I thought. <laughs> Might be a 
something you could experiment with. Um, but Yancey was someone who had doubts, who struggled with his faith, but by the grace of God was able to carry on. And so as I was thinking this week about um, what I might share with you, who I might use as a jumping off point for this morning's sermon, um, I thought, where's all the women at? Because, you know, like there's plenty that have left a lasting legacy on the world, aren't there? Mother Teresa, Elizabeth Fry, Harriet Tubman, Corrie uh, Ten Boom, one of my favourites. Um, but as I was talking to Sean, my wife, about this earlier in the week, she told me about someone who I'd never heard of before. Um, someone who is represented here. I wonder if anyone has ever seen this before or knows what this is. Um, if you're listening on podcast, it's a picture of a cross that's been painted in bright colours. And in the middle is a woman with her arms raised in praise. And around the outside are several other images of the same woman. Nursing a child, farming, teaching children and teaching adults as well. So there's a few, a few clues there. Does anyone know? Oh, excellent. I will take it from your silence that this is all going to be new and exciting for you this morning. Well, the cross itself actually comes from a country um, called uh, El Salvador in Central America. Have you heard of that country? Okay, cool. Um, And the woman it depicts is called Maria Cristina Gomez. And this is uh, a photo of her and El Salvador. Um, She was born on the 5th of May, 1942, um, in El Salvador. The name uh, El Salvador literally means the saviour, the saviour. And it was a country that was suffering from chronic um, political and economic instability, to kind of put it mildly. Ten years before her birth, the Communist Party of Central America had stirred up the indigenous farmers to revolt. And the government responded by killing 30,000 of them at what was supposed to be a peaceful meeting. It became known locally as the slaughter. And the main problem, as it often is, was the division of wealth. People were either very, very poor or very, very wealthy. There was hardly any middle class. And those at the top took what they wanted from those at the bottom. If they wanted land, they took it from them and they never gave them the opportunity to socially advance and so there were many coups and revolts and eventually all of this culminated in a civil war which broke out in 1979 and lasted until 1992. It saw the deaths of over 70,000 people and all the people wanted really was um, unionisation rights and better wages and accessible healthcare and freedom of expression. They wanted to learn modern farming techniques so that they could um, advance, so that they could better themselves, but they were prevented from doing so. And so for years there was violence and bloodshed in the streets. By the end of the 1970s, government death squads were killing on average 10 people a day. The Archbishop of San Salvador, which is the capital of El Salvador, a man called Oscar Romero, denounced the killings that were being committed against civilians by the government. And he also spoke out against poverty and social injustice at the time. He earned the nickname, the voice of the voiceless. And as a result of his public speaking, he was assassinated in front of his congregation while saying mass on the 24th of March, 1980. And so 
It was in this intense, volatile climate in which Maria Cristina Gomez grew up. This was her experience. It was in this climate that she became a wife and a mother of four children. She was a member um, and later on a leader of the Emmanuel Baptist Church in San Salvador, but she spent a great deal of her time pursuing ecumenical works. That's churches working together for the good of the country. And she worked as a primary school teacher. She believed passionately in the power of education um, to change people's lives. Later, she became a leader of the National Association of Educators of El Salvador, a teaching union, essentially. So you might say she was, she was pretty busy. She had a lot on her plate, but she didn't stop there. When she wasn't raising her children or working at the school or leading the teaching union or leading the church, she would go out into the local villages head out into the rural communities and she would teach the women there, the poorest of the poor, to read. And her thinking was that if, if she could teach them to read, that they in turn could teach their children to read, that they would be able to access literature that would help them improve their lives, that would teach them the, the modern farming techniques they so desperately needed. And over time, the cycle of poverty would be broken. <clears throat> she sought to lift them up out of their circumstances. She wanted to give them a hope for the future. But her actions didn't go unnoticed. Some in authority became concerned that previously illiterate peasants would soon be able to read about their own rights and then perhaps start to insist upon them. The work that she was doing was not conducive to keeping people down and keeping people in their place. But the more time Maria spent with these women, the more she got to know them, the more she became aware of their deep and desperate needs. And in 1986, she founded the National Coordination of Salvadorian Women. It was an organisation that sought to address the issues that directly affected the poorest among them. Specifically, they wanted to work with women that had been suffered, um, suffered domestic violence or rape to teach them um, economic survival and um, how to participate politically and how to deal with social inequality that existed in El Salvador. And three years later, in 1989, the National Coordination of Salvadorian Women, it opened its first clinic for victims of domestic and sexual violence. It was a landmark moment, made possible only through the tireless work of Maria Cristina Gomez and others like her. It's incredible. On the 5th of April, that same year, when returning from work, coming back from school, Maria was snatched from the street by heavily armed men in civilian clothing and bundled into the back of a van. About an hour later, the van arrived at a cemetery on the outskirts of San Salvador, and she was removed from the van alive and shot four times, where she was instantly killed. Later, an autopsy revealed signs of torture, of burns on her shoulders and her neck made using acid. She was 46, and her children were teenagers at the time. The cross that I showed you at the start was commissioned by her church shortly after her death. They asked a local artist to paint her work amongst the poorest in El Salvador that she might be remembered for her actions. 
Over the past few weeks, we've heard, haven't we, many incredible um, uh, statements and quotes from uh, wonderful men of faith, some, some deep thinkers. But Maria's legacy was not to be defined by the things that she said. In fact, I couldn't find anything that's been recorded that she said, but her legacy was defined by the way that she lived her life, by her actions, by her compassion for the poorest of the poor in her country. And since her death, that cross has been used around the world in schools and churches to speak about her story, to tell others. But here's what I think is fascinating about that cross. This is why I wanted to talk about this this morning. We're used to seeing it. We're used to seeing the cross, aren't we? Those of us that are Christians. But normally the cross is either empty or it shows um, a, a picture of Jesus on it. And so I think it's really unusual to see somebody else on the cross. And yet, if you look close enough, I think that you can see Jesus. I don't mean this is like a where's Wally and he's hiding in the, in the window or something before you strain your eyes too much. But what I mean is that you can see his heart for the poor and the broken, for the downtrodden, for the social outcasts, for those who have no hope and no future. You can see his desire to reach them, to lift them, to love them out of their circumstances. You see, I think the legacy of Maria Cristina Gomez is actually the legacy of Jesus seen in her life. She understood the cost. She knew the risk. Oscar Romero was killed in 1980 for simply speaking about these things, but her compassion, it drove her into action. Despite the risk, despite the danger to herself. And isn't that very Jesus? I just want to share with you um, a couple of examples from Scripture of where I think we see Jesus doing the same thing. The first one that came to mind this week as I was reflecting on the story of Maria Gomez was the woman who'd been sick, who'd been bleeding for 12 years. Do you remember that story? It's in Matthew, Mark and Luke, but I want to read it to you from Luke this morning because Luke gives us lots of detail. He was a details-orientated guy. It's uh, chapter 8, if you would like to follow along in your own Bibles. I'm going to begin reading at verse um, 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And there was a woman there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And so this is, this is our setup. This is the scene. Jesus is in a place at the moment um, called the Gerasenes. A short while ago, He'd um, healed a man who was possessed by many, many demons. He'd sent uh, the demons out of the man into a drift of pigs. A drift is the correct collective noun for pigs. Um, my favourite collective noun um, is for flamingos. Does anyone know what that is? A flamboyance of flamingos. How great is that? But this was a drift of pigs. The pigs didn't much like being possessed by the demons, so they threw themselves um, into the lake and drowned. No more bacon butties for breakfast. 
which was a problem, unless you were Jewish or Muslim. Um, but the man who'd been healed was really grateful. And so he went all over the town telling everyone what Jesus had done for him. So when Jesus turned up later on, they were all expecting him. They were all excited. What's he going to do? <gasps> What's next? Hopefully stay away from the animals. Um, but one of the people that was most desperate to see Jesus was a local synagogue leader. There's a man called Jairus, someone who was very important. We know he was important because we're told his name. And he comes and he begs Jesus, doesn't he? He says, my daughter, she's 12, Jesus, she's dying. Can you come? Can you save her? And Jesus says, yeah, of course. And the crowds think, brilliant, this is what we were hoping for. This is, this is exciting. He's going to do something cool. And so they follow Jesus and Jairus back to Jairus' home. And so this is the big scene. This is the drama, the action sequence, if you like. If this was uh, a movie, there'd be some rousing music at this point. The camera would pan backwards from Jesus onto the street and you'd see him marching forward and the crowd all pushing in behind him as he goes to save the day. But then Luke pans the camera in to the crowd and he focuses on this unnamed woman, someone who was most likely hiding her face with a shawl because she was someone who shouldn't be there. She had a, an unresolved medical issue that had plagued her for the, the past 12 years. It was a medical issue that had come to define her life. Mark tells us that she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had because there was no NHS. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Except that it was, it was worse still because according to Jewish ideas at the time, this woman couldn't touch, couldn't come into contact with anyone in any way because she would impart her uncleanliness to them. She'd have been forced to live a life of exclusion, of isolation, a hidden existence for 12 years. And her condition would have prevented her from taking part in any aspect of collective worship. She wouldn't have been allowed into the building. She'd have been stopped at the door. No, thank you. You go away. You are unclean. You are not welcome here. Leave. Turn around. And so in Jesus, she just sees this, this glimmer of hope. Maybe if I can just get to him, you know, if I can find a way through a crowd, maybe if I could just touch the, the, the edge of his cloak, I wouldn't want to touch him and make him unclean, but perhaps I could be healed. Perhaps I could be healed. And so we see all this in a, in a flashback and we return to the scene and the camera follows her as she makes her way through the crowd, carefully pushing forward and then all of a sudden he's there and as he turns the corner, the breeze catches the edge of his cloak and it flaps out behind him and it says in verse 44, as she came up behind him, she touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt something change inside. But then the dramatic music comes to a halt. The crowd stops behind Jesus and Jesus turns and he says, who touched me? Who touched me? And the crowd look confused. I mean, Jesus, there's a lot of people here. Peter leans in and whispers, Master, there's like loads of people. What are you on about? If you want some personal space, we can, we can make a barrier. It'll be all right. But Jesus says, no, someone touched me. 
I know because power has gone out from me. And the woman is panicking inside, no time to process what has happened. She knows that he is the one, that she is the one that he is talking about. And she spent her entire life needing to hide away. But now, here in the crowd, he is calling her out. And it says in verse 47, The woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. And then she waited to hear her fate, her head bowed low. And Jesus says these awesome, awesome words to her. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This nameless woman, this face in the crowd is given a title by the king of kings. He calls her daughter. Think about that for a moment. The past 12 years, she's been told that she's unclean, that she's unfit, that she's unwell, that she's been kept at arm's length literally by everyone. Imagine not being hugged for 12 years. Yet in this moment, Jesus declares in front of the crowd, in front of everyone, including the leader of the synagogue, Jairus, who was with him, that she is a daughter that she's no longer to be treated as unclean, but as a welcome member of the family. He restores her fully in the eyes of God and in the eyes of everybody else. No longer would she be able to, need to, live her life on the fringe. And I think that's so, so beautiful. Let me give you another one. Um, Flick or scroll backwards to chapter 7 of Luke. There's actually two examples in this chapter. Um, The first one is in verse 11. It says, Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. So Jesus, popular guy, lots of people with him all the time, very, very busy. He had his 12 disciples and all the other followers. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. So this time, um, the scene is it's a funeral procession, essentially. And there was a curious tradition in the first century um, with funeral processions where you would, you would hire people, um, essentially professional mourners, to come along and be part of your procession. And it was their job um, to make a ruckus, to cry, to wail, to be extra sad very, very loudly so that everybody knew that you were sad and could join in in the funeral procession. Um, sort of like how a hearse goes really slow, but instead of car horns honking, it was lots and lots of people crying. So Jesus had a big crowd. She had a big crowd as well, this big dramatic scene. And then Luke mentions, he draws our attention again to another nameless woman in the crowd. He says that she's lost her son, but not only that, that she is a widow as well. And this is really significant because in, in, a, in a patriarchal society like Jesus lived, the woman with no son or husband would struggle financially for the rest of her life. Depending upon her entitlement, she may even lose the land where she lives. She may be res- have to resort to begging for the rest of her days. So this is not only a, a personal tragedy, but it's also an economic disaster. What does Jesus do? Well, it says in verse 13, When the Lord saw her, 
they saw her. So he's got this huge crowd, loads of disciples, loads of followers, loads of people that are interested. She's got this huge funeral procession. And yet in the midst of all of that, all of that chaos, he sees her, he spots her. <coughs> it says his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Don't cry. And then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on. And the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Now, if you touched a dead body in Jewish society, if you touched a coffin, or even if you touched a grave, you were to be considered unclean for seven days. <coughs> but I think it's interesting that Jesus' motivation isn't ritual cleanliness or looking right. It's compassion for this woman. He doesn't care about appearing pure or holy in this moment. All he cares about is that there is a woman crying. There is a woman who has lost it all. You know, sometimes to help the fallen, you need to get a little dirty. I'm sure there's a lesson there. He knows what she needs in order to be lifted out of her present circumstances, and he gives it to her. He restores her son and therefore her hope for the future. Come on. Wow. Wow. Are you excited? I'm excited. One more. Let me do one more. End of chapter 7, verse 36. This, this is the best one, I think. I didn't think it was when I started this earlier in the week, but then I read it and God showed me something I hadn't seen before, and now I think this is really cool. So if you haven't been excited yet, this is the one. All right? Verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So a nice normal meal, home of a Pharisee, probably a nice home. Don't know what they were having, maybe beef bourguignon. We'll never know. But there's a plot twist. Something happens. It says, there was a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, um, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So again, another nameless woman. And all we're really told about her is that she's someone who's led a sinful life. She has a reputation. And so from the context, it's, it's likely that she was a prostitute, a sex worker, someone whose services you employed in a darkened alleyway, but in the light of day, you kept away from her. She's got a rep. Don't associate with her. But there's another odd little detail that Luke gives us here. He says that Jesus is reclining at the table and the woman comes up behind him to wash his feet. So that means Jesus is either sitting like this at the table or, or maybe like this. But his feet are behind him. And that, and that makes sense because tables then, they were, they were low tables. So he's facing Simon with his back to this woman. And it says that when Jesus, when this Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he said it to himself, so he's mumbling, he's moaning. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Of course Jesus knew. Of course he knew. He knew every detail of her life. He knew what had led her to this situation. He knew her desire and her heart to be free 
from the life that she had chosen and the consequences of it. And so it says in verse 44 that he turned towards the woman and said to Simon. So he's now facing the woman with his back to his host, Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, still facing her, your sins are forgiven. The other guest said, who is this that forgives sins? And he said to the woman, still facing her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you see the dignity and the love that he shows her? Just as she has poured out perfume upon him, he turns to her and he pours out praise upon her in front of the man that has talked her down with his back to him. He turns to face her. And he says, do you see, Simon? Do you see? Do you see what this woman has done? And then he looks directly at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The outcome that you thought your life had earned you, the journey that you thought you were on is over. You are made whole. You are free now. Go in peace. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years thought that she would always be defined by her illness, a life of isolation and loneliness, but Jesus lifted her out of it. The woman who lost her son thought that she had lost everything. She saw no hope for the future, no means of financial support, but Jesus lifted her out of it. The woman who lived her life as a prostitute thought that God could never forgive her for the life that she had chosen, that there was no way back, no redemption, but Jesus lifted her out of it. The poor women of El Salvador who thought that their lives would never change, who suffered under the oppression of the government and saw no way, no future for themselves, were lifted out of their situation by Jesus through Maria Cristina Gomez. Wow. Who might Jesus rescue through you? Who might Jesus rescue through you? You. Who do you know who needs lifting out of their current circumstances? Who do you know that is waiting for rescue or perhaps just waiting for someone to notice them in the crowd? For someone to turn their face to them and say, you know what, you matter. You matter to me. You matter to God. You are loved You are important. You are worth more than the circumstances of your life have allowed you to believe up until this point. You know, there's loads, there's so many more examples I could have given you this morning from Scripture of Jesus doing this over and over and over again. I could could keep you here all day. I won't. (laughs) But I think the ultimate example is, is the cross. Because it's on the cross that Jesus dies to make everyone right with God. Everyone. The perfect, sinless sacrifice for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only. Right? John 3, 16. The cross restores us all. The cross lifts us all up. 
and rescues us from our sinful nature. It gives us a hope for the future that we never had. And during his life and ministry, Jesus interacted with and restored those whose society or religious institutions had cast aside, deemed unworthy, labelled as unclean, whether through illness or infirmity, whether through gender or political persuasion or demon possession or even employment. Jesus loves sex workers. Come on. He met them where they were and he lifted them up. Sometimes simply by talking to them. Giving them the time of day when nobody else would. But often he did more than that. He restored them in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man. And I love that. I love that. How different would this world be if we actively looked for the downtrodden and found a way to help them out. To help them to their feet. Just as Maria Gomez did. Certainly there were those with ideas above their station. Normally the religious types who Jesus humbled. But for those who saw themselves as less than a child of God, Jesus lifted them up. I want you to know this morning that you are not less than a child of God in his eyes. You are not less. You might be a mess. Most of us are. (laughs) But you're not less. So what can we do? How should we respond to this message this morning? We need to look at our calling in the world. We need to ask whether we're living the legacy of Jesus in our own lives. If I was doing this sermon with the young people, with the youth, I'd probably give you a little exercise to do at this point. I'd give you a little outline of the cross, and uh, just like Maria's earlier, and I'd ask you to think about the legacy of Jesus in your own life. What images might fill it after your time on earth is through? What would you hope to see there? What would you hope not to see there? Unfortunately, I don't have enough felt tips in my pencil case for us all, but maybe you can do that as a, as a mental exercise. Perhaps you can think about that in your life groups this week. But the question is this, can the legacy of Jesus be seen in the cross of your life? Can the legacy of Jesus be seen in the cross of your life? Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. I think we often forget the, the daily part of that. I just want to finish um, this morning with some words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, some incredible words. It's kind of a challenge, really, and um, I want to leave it with you this morning. It's a summary, I think, of what we've been talking about. This is what he writes. He says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We have a different lens with which we view the world. We're all children of God, sons of daughters, and so we think of no one as less than that, okay? He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, that's me and you, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us, that's me and you, the message of reconciliation. We have a calling upon our lives to reconcile people to God and to each other, to help them see and understand how God feels about them. We are therefore, says verse 20, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just think about those words 
for a moment. We are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. When Maria Gomez went into those poorest communities and sat with those women who everybody else who had forgotten about, when she had parted to them that precious gift of literacy, when she fought to see them lifted out of the circumstances of their birth and the horrors of life, she revealed God's heart to them. God made his appeal through her compassion and kindness. She taught them through her actions and words, you are not less. You are not less. I guess it's, um, it's, it's easy when we do a series uh, like this to look at these incredible people and think, well, they had a fight, didn't they? They were living in more extreme times. Poverty um, was all around or injustice or whatever. And we, we don't have a fight, do we? I mean, things are pretty good for us. What can we do? But, you know, I don't think the nature of humanity has changed. People are still broken. People are still hurting. People are still lost. People are still looked down upon. People are still cast aside. People are still forgotten about. How many people do you know right now who are drowning in the circumstances of life? Who are finding the thought of tomorrow a bit difficult to comprehend? You know, I mean, there are people like that in the church let alone the world. We don't have to go very far to find people who need lifting. And so I think just like Jesus, we need to look for those that are hiding in the crowd. We need to look for those that are hidden in the shadows. Look for those who are crying, crying in desperation, because we have a ministry of reconciliation. And so as I conclude this morning's teaching, I think we should ask ourselves, who is it that needs lifting today? Who needs to know that they are loved by the King of Kings as a son and a daughter? It might be you. God wants you to know that you are not less in his eyes. If that is you this morning, I'd love you to to speak to us so we can pray with you. I wonder if the band would just come and um, join me on stage. I think it would be good just to spend a few minutes... Now, here at the end of the service, just to pray together, to just make space for the Holy Spirit this morning. I think we've already had a wonderful encounter with God today in our worship. But I believe there's a response to this message in our own lives. Perhaps first for ourselves, a recognition again of how God views us and sees us as his children, beloved by him, but also a response for us to make in the world to be on the lookout for those people that need lifting out of their circumstances, that need rescuing, that need to be told that they have value, that need to understand that just because the circumstances of their life have made them feel one way, that doesn't have to be their reality. I wonder if you'd stand with me.